And Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings, listeners, from your cordially genial host, John Derbyshire, here at VDare.com's lavishly equipped sound studio to bring you commentary on the week's events from a conservative point of view. Prominent in this week's political news was the Wednesday night debate among contenders for the Republican Party presidential nomination next year. This was their second debate. Here's what I had to say about the first debate in August. Quote from myself four weeks ago on Radio Derb, September 1st. Quote, Watching that televised debate for the GOP candidates last week, for a moment I had the thought that I was watching something irrelevant. The acting out of some formal ritual that no longer has any actual significance, from which nothing of any consequence will follow. End quote. I did not actually watch this week's debate, having an appointment elsewhere. All I know about it is second-hand, from news stories, commentary and a published transcript. The impression I got from all that was a stronger version of the one I recorded four weeks ago. This is going to be a peculiar election, unlike any other. The phrase third party keeps coming to mind. As I have told you, I missed Wednesday's Republican candidates debate, so what follows is from second-hand impressions. Clearly, I didn't miss much. Ron DeSantis was the normie on stage. Mike Pence was the 20th century conservative, Vivek Ramaswamy was the yappy kid, Nikki Haley was the Jeb Bush impersonator, Chris Christie was the comic relief, Doug Burgum and Tim Scott were the more sensible than average no-hopers. Reading the transcript, there seems to have been a lot of cross-talk. To get to essentials, I did Control-F on I-M-M-I-G-R. What did I get? Just six hits. The first four of them were uttered by two of the three moderators. Dana Perino of Fox News and Ilya Calderon of Univision, which is a Spanish-language station. The fifth and sixth occurrences of I-M-M-I-G-R in the transcript are both from Mike Pence. First Pence quote, quote, We built hundreds of miles of border wall and despite what's said here today, we reduced illegal immigration and asylum abuse by 90%. End quote. Second Pence Quote, For this one, if you're a regular reader of VDare.com, you might want to sit down or grab hold of something solid. Quote, the truth is we need to fix a broken immigration system 
and I'll do that as well. End quote. A broken immigration system. The stalest of stale clichés in the immigration lexicon. I tossed and gored the phrase broken immigration system pretty comprehensively in my August 18th podcast. There is, as I and others have pointed out, nothing broken about our immigration system. It would work fine if the ruling class wanted it to. The problem is, they don't want it to. Six hits on IMMIGR isn't many in two hours of debate. In those two hours, at the current rate, there were 575 unauthorised crossings of our border with Mexico into the USA. So, let's try Control-F border. Wow, 23 hits on the transcript. I'll ignore instances where the word border was uttered by a moderator, and I shall slightly edit what the candidates said, just to keep length down, without in any way changing their meaning. Tim Scott, quote, Joe Biden should be on the southern border working to close our southern border because it is unsafe, wide open and insecure, leading to the deaths of 70,000 Americans in the last 12 months because of fentanyl. It is devastating. Every county in America is now a border county because fentanyl has devastated Americans in every single state. End quote. DeSantis, quote, The people in Washington are shutting down the American dream with their reckless behaviour. They have shut down our national sovereignty by allowing our border to be wide open. End quote. Pence, quote, we built hundreds of miles of border wall, and despite what's said here today, we reduced illegal immigration and asylum abuse by 90%. A nation without borders is not a nation, and we have to secure the southern border of the United States of America. I know how to do it, and we will do it again. I'm going to be ready on day one to get Congress to step up secure the southern border of the United States, end quote. Ramaswamy, quote, We do have to seal that southern border. Building the wall is not enough. They are building cartel-financed tunnels underneath that wall. Semi-trucks can drive through them. We have to use our own military to seal the Swiss cheese of a southern border, end quote. DeSantis again, quote, I guarantee you, on day one, this border is going to be a day one issue for me as president. We're going to declare it a national emergency. These guys in Washington, D.C., and they don't care about the American people. They don't care about the fentanyl deaths. They don't care about the communities being overrun because of this border, end quote. Haley, 
referring to Tim Scott from South Carolina, a Congress critter since 2011. Quote from Haley. He's been there 12 years. He has made sure that the borders are open. End quote. Burgum. Quote. The border plans that they all talk about. We've got troops down at the border flying helicopter missions from North Dakota, trying to stop transnational criminal organizations from inflicting the invasion and the mass casualties in our state. End quote. DeSantis yet again, quote, We need somebody that's going to be able to serve two terms, so in January of 2023 they'll be able to address the nation saying, We turned the economy around and we secured the border and we fended off the threat from communist China. As your president, I will get that job done, end quote. Obviously, DeSantis meant 2033. I don't know if that was an error on his part or a typo in the transcript. To find out, I'd have to listen to the damn thing. No! Talk is, of course, cheap. But at this stage of the game, we don't have much else to go on. Talk-wise, in this debate... Where immigration is concerned, DeSantis and Pence are out ahead of the pack. Pence, however, should be disqualified for life from any federal office higher than mail delivery for having used the phrase broken immigration system. No, that's too kind. Pence should be exiled for life from the mainland USA, along with any family members he wants to take with him, to a comfortable residence in the Aleutian Islands, supplied with free food, utilities and health care, plus a modest pension. I said I had been reading commentary about the debate. One of the things I read was a real gem. What I am engaged in here belongs to the sphere of human activity called opinion journalism. The late Auberon War, a British writer who committed a lot of opinion journalism himself, War defined the term opinion journalism as, quote, the vituperative arts, end quote. The blogger who calls himself the Z-Man brought forth a brilliant confirmation of War's definition on September 28th. A thousand words of scathing, cynical vituperation. Every word aimed with precision. Sample, if the Z-Man won't mind me plagiarising him. Sample, quote, Why anyone thinks people will sit through this is a mystery. They could easily solve this problem. He means the problem of people talking over each other. They could easily solve this problem with the use of shock collars. If a performer talks over another performer, he gets enough voltage to disable him for a few minutes. Maybe employ trapdoors under their feet as a sort of timeout. 
If the performer keeps breaking the rules, the door opens and he falls into a garbage pit. He then has to climb the stairs back to the stage, covered in garbage, and retake his spot. End quote. The only improvement I would make on that would be to replace the garbage pit with a latrine pit. A different British journalist, Claude Coburn, although not that different, he was a second cousin twice removed of Oberon War, uh, Claude Coburn used to tell the story that when he was working as a headline writer at The Times of London, he and some colleagues staged competitions among themselves to see who could compose the dullest headline. Coburn claimed that he won one of those contests with the headline Small Earthquake in Chile. Not many dead. That came to mind on Tuesday when I was reading news stories about the Speaker of the Canadian House of Commons resigning. All right, I did not actually see a headline saying just that. Speaker of the Canadian House of Commons resigns. If I had, though, I would have filed it along with Coburn's small earthquake in Chile as one of the all-time dullest headlines. Just the word Canadian flips the dullness switch. When was there ever an interesting news story from the frozen tundra up there north of Niagara Falls? Eh? This one deserves some attention, though. The dramatis personae in this story are one, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, two, current Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, three, a chap named Antony Rota, Speaker of the Canadian House of Commons, which is, of course, the lower house of Canada's legislature, and four, 98-year-old Yaroslav Honka, a Canadian originally from Ukraine, who, during World War II, served in combat against the savage, murderous Russian regime of Joseph Stalin. Last Friday, September 22nd, the current Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, gave a speech to the Canadian Parliament. Prime Minister Trudeau was there too, and he also gave a speech. Zelensky got a standing ovation. Then, Speaker Rota asked the assembled parliamentarians to give another standing ovation to Yaroslav Honka who was in the chamber as a guest, for his heroism as a Ukrainian patriot fighting the Russians 80 years ago. The House, including Trudeau and Zelensky, obediently stood and applauded. Whoops! It quickly emerged that the unit Mr Hunker had served in was the Galician Division. 
Galicia is a region of Eastern Europe now straddling the border between Poland and Ukraine. It has a big Ukrainian population. When Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, sending his army eastward from its positions in occupied Poland to attack the Soviet Union, the whole of Galicia quickly fell under German occupation. So the Germans found themselves ruling over a lot of Ukrainians who bitterly hated the USSR for Stalin's repressions and for the terrible famine that he'd unleashed a few years before, the Holodomor. The German high command had the idea to recruit these Ukrainians to help fight the Soviets. Such a unit was duly formed in 1943, the Galician Division. They fought through to the end of the war when they surrendered to the Allies, some to the USSR, some to the Western armies. That was the World War II background of Yaroslav Honka, the guy who got a standing ovation from Canada's Parliament last Friday. So, he was a Nazi, right? Well, he was certainly fighting in a unit under Nazi command. In fact, under command of Heinrich Himmler's SS, who were the Naziest of the Nazis. How much Mr. Hunker knew about the Nazis, or how much he was taught in political education sessions during his two years with the Colours, I haven't been able to ascertain. For sure, he knew he was Ukrainian. He knew that Stalin's Russia had been beastly to Ukrainians, and he knew that by enlisting in the Galician division, he would have the chance to kill Russians. It's entirely possible he knew nothing more than that. Or that he knew somewhat more, or a lot more. I don't know. Did he participate in massacres of Jews or of Russian or Polish partisans? We don't know. The Galician division surely committed atrocities against Polish civilians who had resisted the Germans, but I don't know whether Hunker participated. The government of Poland seems to think he did. They are making noises about extraditing him although as of today there has been no formal request. So, a considerable embarrassment for the Canadian Parliament. How could they have been so dumb as not to check the historical background there? It took me 20 minutes on the internet. Why didn't Trudeau have someone do that? Or Speaker Rota? or one, at least one, of the host of parliamentarians who applauded Mr. Hunker. Most of the answer, I think, is encompassed by the word ignorance. The key events here, events on the Eastern Front of World War II, are not generally known. 
I'd like to see a survey telling us what proportion of Canadian adults, or of adults in any country west of Eastern Europe, what proportion know that Hitler and Stalin were allies from 1939 to 1941, and that the invasion of Poland was a joint German and Soviet operation. I feel quite sure that the answers to that survey would be deeply depressing. And this is confident ignorance, the worst kind. Not only do people not know much about the Eastern Front in World War II, they think they do know. In all fairness, it would be surprising if people did know much. The different nations and regions there, the different ethnicities and religions, the ancient grievances and grudges, it's all a mighty tangle. As for massacres, the Eastern Front was a feast of massacres by all parties. There is a recent book about that by Timothy Snyder, Professor of History at Yale University. No, I haven't read it, but I can tell you the title. Bloodlands. Subtitle, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. Bloodlands. That's the territory where Yaroslav Hunker did his military service in his late teens. You want to pass judgment? Hey. I should add, by the way, to any listeners thinking of diving into the history here, that not only is it an almighty tangle in itself, it comes encrusted with conspiracy theories and contrarianism, as I think is the case with all World War II issues. If you want to get into that, you might start with the Suvorov hypothesis, which was a favourite of my dear old friend, the late Boris Zeldovich. What I've given you here is the conventional wisdom. For different accounts, consult your friendly neighbourhood contrarian. As a footnote to that segment, I would just like to air my annoyance at the apparently endless obsession with Hitler and his Nazis as standing above all other despotic regimes in wickedness. Yes, they were wicked, and they did some dreadful things. The same can be said of a lot of other despotisms, though, some of them with us today. Think of North Korea. And yes, it is particularly tragic the Germany, which around the year 1900 was a strong contender for the title Most Advanced and Civilised Nation on Earth, that Germany should have been taken over by gangster ideologues. The Russia of Lenin and Stalin was at least as bad, though, and they murdered far more of their own people. Admittedly, they held power for longer than Hitler's 12 years, so they had more time to do their murdering in. And admittedly, they weren't as viciously anti-Semitic as the Nazis, 
although Stalin personally was an anti-Semite, and there were signs that he was turning the party in that direction just before he died. Google Doctor's Plot Not much of that has filtered down into the popular consciousness, though. Wicked rulers of recent times? Hitler! Hitler! Nazis! Nazis! It seems to be all that people know. Yes, the Nazis were wicked. No argument from me. I only deny that they were uniquely, supremely, head and shoulders above wicked. A friend who has kids in British schools tells me that history lessons over there offer as key figures what he called the two H's, King Henry VIII and Hitler. Nobody else, he told me, gets much of a mention. I feel sure he was exaggerating, but uh, not totally sure. A side effect of this particular kind of ignorance is a vague, dim-witted anti-Germanism. German-Americans of the woke persuasion are often ashamed of their ancestry. Exhibit A, Bill de Blasio, the communist mayor of New York City, from 2014 to 2021. He was German-American through his father. Father and son were both named... Warren Wilhelm. He flipped to his mother's name, de Blasio, when he entered politics. I have described myself more than once as a Germanophile. The German language was one of my better school subjects, although of course I've forgotten most of it now. German mathematics, from Gauss to Hilbert, is one of the seven wonders of intellectual history. German music is, of course, another. A great nation with tremendous cultural achievements. Today, of course, Germany, like Britain, has sunk into decadence, self-loathing and multiculturalism. Probably it's all over for them. Those magnificent achievements of the past still stand, though. They will stand for as long as human beings have any knowledge of our history. Which makes it all the more depressing that, if you ask a random passerby in New York or London to name a prominent German figure of the modern age, as often as not the only name he can give you is... You know who. Who, strictly speaking, wasn't even German, but Austrian. The shoplifting epidemic is seriously out of control. There were two big stories this week. On Tuesday, mega-retailer Target announced it is closing nine stores in several locations across the country, including San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Oregon, and New York City. Quote from the New York Times, September 26th, quote, Target's chief executive, Brian Cornell, said that the company, 
in a, quote, continues to face an unacceptable amount of retail theft and organised retail crime, end in a quote. He said that in the first five months of the year, thefts in its stores that involved violence or threats of violence rose 120%. Executives at other retailers like Macy's and Dick's Sporting Goods have also been warning Wall Street about the impact theft is having on their business. End quote. Then, on Tuesday night, a big crowd of what my Wednesday New York Post described as, quote, young looters, end quote, roamed through Philadelphia, ransacking stores. Foot Locker, Apple, Lululemon are named in the story. They were, quote, lifting merchandise and stuffing it in large plastic bags, end quote. Going back to the first of those stories, the one about Target closing stores, the New York City store they're closing is the one in East Harlem. Harlem, hmm. With that in mind... And after seeing news pictures of the Philadelphia looters, I'm going to be shamelessly impertinent and ask, is there some particular characteristic of these uh, young looters that an impartial observer might notice, aside from their youth? It's time to re-air one of my favourite personal anecdotes. Looking back through my archives, I see that I first aired this anecdote in 2013, August 2013, here at Radio Derb. That's ten years ago. Then I had a reference to it in my monthly diary for March 2018, five years ago. Ten years ago, five years ago, it's high time for a re-airing. I shall give you the actual original from 2013, as recorded. But first, a brief intro. In that 2013 podcast, I had just mentioned Steve Saylor's brilliant coining of the phrase Occam's Butter Knife. That's a spoof on Occam's Razor. Occam's razor is the logical principle that, when all else is equal, the explanation you should favour is the one that needs the fewest assumptions to support it. Steve's perversion of that, Occam's butter knife, says that when the simplest, most straightforward explanation, in other words, the one favoured by Occam's razor, when that explanation is unacceptable to you for social or emotional reasons, look for something more complicated. OK, here was me podcasting back in 2013. I recall a fine example of Occam's razor, not the butter knife now, the original razor, 
from 30 or so years ago when I was doing office work in London. I had a colleague, a white guy from South Africa, who spoke with those strange flattened vowels they use. He actually pronounced the name of his country as something like Sidefrike. Well, chatting around the office one day, I mentioned a certain district of London that was plagued with street crime. At that time, my youthful liberalism had not yet altogether worn off, so I was reaching for Occam's butter knife, positing poverty, fatherlessness, lack of public facilities, and so on, as the causes of all the street crime. My boa friend listened for a while till his patience ran out, then he cut me off with Occam's razor. It's the blicks, dear fellow, he said. It's the blicks. So it was, and so it is. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. In last week's podcast, I tackled the question why, when apparently honest politicians get elected on a platform of strict immigration control, Italy's Giorgia Maloney, for example, they are unable to deliver on it. The answer, I said, is lawfare. Lawfare on the part of human rights lobbies backed by institutions like the United Nations Refugee Convention and the European Court of Human Rights. These lobbies, for whom unrestricted immigration, including illegal immigration, is apparently a human right, these lobbies have enough influence, enough lawyers and unfortunately enough general support to wage delaying tactics indefinitely against governments trying to control their borders. Well, here's someone who's as angry about this as I am. Suella Braverman, the British Home Secretary. That's like our Attorney General, more or less. Earlier this week... Mrs. Braverman gave a speech to the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. This, let me remind you, this is the lady who was reprimanded earlier this year by Britain's Bar Association for referring to illegal aliens crossing the channel in small boats as, quote, invaders, end quote. She hasn't lost any of that good immigration restrictionist spirit. She told the AEI gathering on Tuesday that multiculturalism has been a failure and that uncontrolled immigration was a threat to Western Civ. And, quote from the Daily Mail, Ms Braverman called for an overhaul of the UN Refugee Convention to help end the Channel Crisis and took another swipe at the European Convention on Human Rights. She branded the system unsustainable, complaining that it creates huge incentives for illegal migration. End quote. 
That stirred some commentators to point out that Mrs Braverman, although born in Britain, was the child of parents from India. So who was she to speak ill of immigration? Some even more unkind people noted that her husband, Rail Braverman, is Jewish, so that presumably he is of immigrant stock too, perhaps a few generations back. Well, yes, but Mrs Braverman, and someone should tell the Daily Mail that she is indeed a Mrs, not a Ms., Mrs Braverman strikes me as totally assimilated to British norms. She still has somewhat of a South London accent. I've never seen a picture of her in a sari, and there is no dot on her forehead. She's a Buddhist, but she doesn't make a public issue of it. Another quote from the Mail. She insisted migrants could no longer be allowed to come to the UK and live parallel lives rather than integrating, end quote. That's a key point, the distinction between hard and soft multiculturalism. In hard multiculti, you keep up your ethnic identity, even agitating for government support of it. You live parallel lives. In soft multiculti, you assimilate. You may look different from the legacy population, and you may even retain some differences in your private life, in your diet or your religion. But in your public life, in your relation to the larger society, you become a native. Ed West had a very good column on this, on Mrs Braverman, on the hard versus soft multiculti distinction, and so on. He had a very good column on this at his substack yesterday. I commend it to your attention. Item. After airing my little anecdote about it's the blicks, let's glance at Haiti. The place is an appalling mess, of course. Quote from the BBC, September 28th. Haiti has suffered from gang violence for decades, but the current wave of brutality escalated after the July 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. Gangs have taken control of large parts of the country, waging terror on residents and killing hundreds, end quote. Well, the Beeb reports that Haiti's black brethren in Africa want to help. The East African nation of Kenya wants to send a thousand police officers to, quote, neutralise the armed gangs, protect civilians and bring about peace, security and order, end quote. The BBC report lists some reasons to doubt that Kenya's intervention will have much effect. 1. 
Kenyans speak English and Swahili, both very different from Haitian Creole. So there'll be a language problem. 2. Kenya's police officers on their home ground are not best known for flawless professionalism in dealing with their own people, the people of Kenya. 3. Previous foreign interventions in Haiti have an unbroken record of dismal failure. We actually conducted military occupations of the place from 1915 to 1934, then again in 1994 and again in 2004. We left Haiti pretty much as we found it, every time. The UN has deployed there too in the 2000s and after the terrible earthquake of 2010. Same result, or rather lack of result. So, with regard to this Kenyan intervention, let's wait and see. If it is another flopperoo, at least they won't be able to blame it on the white man. Item. A core feature of current Democratic Party dogma is that we need to ban cars. Cars fuelled by gasoline, that is. Nine states, count them, nine. California, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Oregon, Rhode Island and Washington, nine states, all run by Democrats, have officially committed to ban cars by 2035. It's surprising how little this is mentioned in political and election talk. Not only is it not popular, but as Daniel Greenfield recorded in his blog on September 20th, it's been getting less popular year by year. This could be an election changer. I think it's nuts, like many other policies favoured by what we used to call the party of the little guy. Speaking for this one little guy, i.e. myself, they can have my internal combustion engine-powered horseless carriage when they prize it from my cold, dead driveway. Item. Finally, a note from the world of academic anthropology. You know anthropology. They're the academics who go off to live with hunter-gatherer people in remote places to master the clicks and grunts of their languages and to write learned theses about their mating customs, child-raising practices, family relationships, social organisation, migratory habits and so on. Well, the anthropologists of the USA and Canada are having their annual conference in Toronto, November 15th to 19th. The two principals in charge of the conference are the presidents of the American Anthropological Association and the Canadian Anthropology Society. Six fully credentialed academics, one from Harvard, arranged to have, as one of the conference events, a panel discussion 
under the heading, "Let's talk about sex, baby." Why a biological sex remains a necessary analytic category in anthropology. Their proposal for this discussion was originally accepted by the conference organizers, but then the organizers changed their minds. The panel has now been removed from the program due to the quote. Harm, end quote, it will cause to the quote, trans and LGBTQI community. End quote. The six proponents of the panel have written a letter of protest at the cancellation. One of them, anthropology professor Elizabeth Weiss of San Jose State University in, of course, California. Has posted that letter of protest along with the original notice of cancellation at her website. So, it is now unacceptable for anthropologists to retain biological sex as a necessary analytic category. It'll be interesting to see how they now write. About the mating customs, child raising practices, family relationships, etc., of Eskimos, Hottentots, Polynesian Islanders, and tribes folk of the Mato Grosso and the Australian outback, without talking about biological sex, or perhaps I should say, it won't be interesting at all. That's all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time and attention, for your emails and donations. Speaking about Germans and Germany back there, I have been remiss in not having mentioned that we are in Oktoberfest. The dates of Oktoberfest are different each year, according to a complicated formula. This year's festival runs for two and a half weeks. We have actually been in it since it started two Saturdays ago. It officially ends this coming Tuesday, October third. So I've been double delinquent. I didn't mention Oktoberfest in either the September fifteenth or the September twenty-second podcast. For a Germanophile, that's pretty shoddy. I had the idea to make up for my delinquency by signing out this week with a lusty Oktoberfest song. I accordingly went to the internet and looked up the most popular Oktoberfest songs, but none of the German language songs on that list ignited my enthusiasm. I briefly contemplated ignoring the list, and just giving you my own a cappella German language rendering of Lily Marlene. Then it occurred to me that the great dumb mass of Germanophobes probably think that Lily Marlene is Hitler adjacent, although it really isn't. 
The Nazis, in fact, disapproved of it. Goebbels wouldn't allow it to be played on German radio stations. I could have defied the idiots and just sung it anyway, but I don't need the aggravation. As a great German writer observed, Mit der Dummheit kämpfen Goethe's Selbstvergebens. Against stupidity, the gods themselves struggle in vain. So, I went back to the list and plucked off number seven for your listening enjoyment. It's in English, not in German, but the singer and co-writer of the song was German-American, which I guess is enough to make him an Oktoberfest favourite. Plus, number seven is a lovely song. Nächste Woche gibt es mehr von Radio Derb. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home.